It's no secret that our world is divided right now. What is it that divides us, though? Well, you could say it's the virus and the way some people view it and the way others view it. You could definitely say we're divided by race right now. But ultimately, it's all about what we're saying about those issues. It's about what we're saying about race. It's what we're saying about ourselves. It's what we're saying about the virus. It's what we're saying about politics. It's about what's important to me and what's important to you. It's about what I see and what you just simply do not see. It's about what this person over here has experienced and this person over here is absolutely clueless about. We're divided on what we say about the issues that inform us and the issues that form us, the issues that make us who we are. I remember getting in trouble in junior high youth group. For some of you, that's going to be a complete surprise. You can't imagine something like that happening. I remember getting in trouble in junior high youth group. We were at a concert in an auditorium, and there was a lot of kids, a lot of kids gathered. Now, I, I, have, to, I have to say at the beginning of this story, I was not the instigator, okay? I was not the instigator. I was simply a participator. That, that works, right? It was a large crowd of junior high kids filling the auditorium, and we started yelling back and forth, one side of the auditorium yelling to the other side. And one side would yell, tastes great, and the other side would yell, less filling, tastes great, less filling. Some of you are old enough to remember that reference, right? Some of you are. Yeah, it was the early 80s, and that was a popular advertisement for Miller Lite beer. Tastes great, less filling. Trust me, as junior high kids, we had no idea what we were saying. I thought about that commercial a little bit this week as I was listening to people yell different things. And Tastes great, less filling. The irony of the commercial is the two groups are actually saying the same thing. They're all saying, we love Miller Lite beer. They just love it for, for different reasons. There are times we need to listen to the crowds around us. We need to hear what they're, what they're saying. We need to hear what they're yelling. But we need to listen beyond just what we hear. We need to ask, what is at the heart? What is it that they're feeling? What need is being expressed in what they're saying? And we might find that there's more agreement in the heart than there is in what we're all saying. We're in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, and, and in chapter 9, Luke is coming to a turning point, and he's getting us ready to make the turn with him. By the end of chapter 9, the cross will always be before us. And at chapter 9, we have a decision to make. If we are going to walk with Jesus through the rest of this gospel, and indeed, if we're going to walk with Jesus through the rest of our lives, we have to recognize that the cross is before us. We need to hear that. We need to feel the presence of the cross, and we need to allow it to identify who we are. We're going to begin today in Luke 9, verse 18, to start us off. Verses 18 through 20. Now it happened as he, that is, as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, 
and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Hear that first question from Jesus. Who do the crowds say that I am? We, we need to hear that because he still asks us that question. He still asks us to answer that question. And to answer it, we need to listen to the crowds. We need to listen to what the people around us are saying about Jesus. And isn't it just like Jesus? That his first question, his first concern is not about his disciples. It's not about his own. It's about the crowds. Now, if we've been paying attention through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Luke do something amazing with this idea of the crowds and the, the, the crowd. The crowd has been a constant presence through the Gospel. First, with John the Baptist. With John the Baptist, it's the crowd that asks John, after hearing him preach, what shall we do? And then as Jesus comes on the scene, as he increases and John decreases, it's the crowds that are pressing in on Jesus. It's the crowds that are listening. It's the crowds that are, com it's the crowds that are coming for, for healing. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, it was a, a great crowd that was there, and that crowd included the, the disciples, it included the, the twelve, it included others known as simply the, the crowd. Last week we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000. Who are the 5,000? Jesus calls them the crowd. And so here he asks, who do the crowds say that I am? What are you hearing? What are you hearing, disciples? What are you hearing from the people around us? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say that you are Elijah. Elijah had never died. Elijah had been caught up to heaven in a, in a, a, a chariot of fire, and, and the Jews were expecting a, that Elijah would come back before the Messiah. Elijah would come back. And then some thought that maybe he was one of the other prophets of old, risen from the dead. All of those answers are wrong, but, but hear me, even though every one of those answers is wrong, they are all still in agreement. There's something special about Jesus. There's something special about this guy. He's been sent by God. They're, they're convinced of that. He has been sent with power. They, they are sure of that. He has been sent to announce a change. He has been sent to announce God's presence. And He's been sent to announce God's love. Over the past few weeks, we've witnessed a lot of crowds in our world, haven't we? There's been a lot of different crowds. We've seen constructive crowds, and yeah, we've, we've seen destructive crowds also. A few weeks ago, I was absolutely moved by video from Atlanta of people gathering and applauding as healthcare workers left the hospital as they ended their shifts, people applauding and celebrating them. And then we've seen crowds as destructive forces, as, as protests turned violent. We've seen crowds raising awareness to issues that have divided us. We've seen crowds that are seeking peace what, what I hope we see above all is that crowds are formed when they find a common voice, when they find a, a common cause. And here, here in Luke chapter 9, 
It's the crowds that are saying good things about Jesus. Later, though, in Luke chapter 22, verse 47, it's a crowd that comes with Judas to have Jesus arrested. I think about my crowd. I think about my friends. I, my crowd is a very diverse crowd. I, I love that. I love that they are my crowd, and yet they are all so different. I have people in my crowd who are on the right. I have people in my crowd who are on the left. I have people in my crowd who are conservatives and others who are liberals. I have, I have fundamentalist Christians in my crowd, and I have atheists in my crowd. I've been trying to listen to them all. I've been listening to my atheist friends, and I've been listening to my friends that don't know much about the Bible. By the way, those aren't always the same people. Some of my atheist friends know an awful lot about the Bible. But I've been listening to what they're saying about Jesus lately, about the way that Jesus cares for the lost sheep. They've been saying that lost sheep matter to Jesus. They know that the Bible abhors racism. They know that there is a call to love and that there is a call to forgiveness, that there is a call to peace. Now, when they talk about Jesus, they don't all get it right, but it seems to me that they all recognize that Jesus is special. And I think that's a wonderful place to begin a conversation. And that leads us to Jesus's next question. And for us to answer it, we're going to have to take a look at ourselves. Because Jesus' next question for, for his disciples, for us, is what do the people hear us saying about Jesus? The first question was, who do the crowds say that I am? But then Jesus' second question to his disciples is, who do you say that I am? Now, now keep in mind that at the beginning of chapter 9, uh, the disciples, the 12, had been sent out to preach. Jesus had sent the 12 out to preach, to heal, to cast out demons, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. So I think part of the question has to be, who have you been telling people I am? What have you been saying about me? Have you, my disciples, understood who I am? And Peter is the one, of course, that speaks up and he says the Christ of God. You probably notice Luke's telling of this story is considerably shorter than Matthew's or, uh, or Mark's. Uh, it's considerably shorter than what you and I have said also. If you're like me, when, when you made that good confession, uh, the words I said were something like, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accept Him as my personal Savior and Lord. I don't think I understood all of those words, but I committed to them. I committed to those words. I confessed those words. Luke keeps it simple. Who am I? The Christ of God. Literally, you are God's king. You are his chosen leader for us. You are God's appointed authority over us. You are the one to whom we must bow. Do the crowds hear that? Do the crowds hear that when we tell them that we're Christians? Do our crowds hear that when they know that we go to church or we, uh, we confess Christ as our Lord or we're part of an online church at this time? There's been a lot of polls in recent years and 
A lot of polls asking non-Christians what they think of us, what they think of Christians, who they think we are, and what they think that we are about. One response from those polls has, has disturbed me. When asking, when asking younger generations, what do you think of when you hear about Christians? What do you think of when you think of Christians? One of the responses that's come from a younger generation has been, I don't like how they vote. You hear that? They say of Christians, the first thing they think of is, I don't like how they vote. Folks, that leads me to ask a question. What are they hearing from us? Are they hearing about our politics? Or are they hearing about our faith? What? Who? are we proclaiming to them? And, and who do they see us bowing down to? If we're more characterized by the way we vote than what we say about Jesus, have we missed something? <laughs> Tastes great, less filling. <laughs> I remember one of our youth group leaders wisely asking us to stop chanting that, but they also gave us a different chant. And so we began yelling to the other side of the crowd. We began yelling to the other side of the auditorium. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And they would shout back to us. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And we kept going back and forth. It sounded so cool. I remember years later being at a large uh, promise keepers gathering in a, in a large coliseum. And the leader at that time, after we had been in worship for a while, the, the leader asked us all, just right now, yell out the name of your denomination. And it was utter chaos and confusion. You could not understand a single word being said as all these different denominations, probably hundreds of denominations, the names were shouted out. And then the leader got quiet and he said, now, who is your king? And every voice came back and said, Jesus. Does our crowd hear that? Does our crowd hear that when we declare Jesus is our king? Do they know our confession? It's more than about what they hear. It's about what they see. Do they see our confession lived out? This is essential because the people around us won't hear our confession if they can't see our commitment. Look at where Jesus goes with the disciples next in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, that's something we see happen occasionally in the Gospels, and it's always a little shocking and confusing. Jesus doesn't want them to tell people who he is. This one a little more so, because if, if you're looking at the original language, it isn't just that, it isn't just that he strictly charged and commanded them. It actually says he rebuked them. He rebuked them for saying who he was. He rebuked them for being right. It's the same word used back in chapter 4, verse 40, when a demon-possessed man calls Jesus the Son of God, and Jesus rebukes him and forbids to allow him to say that. We might understand Jesus rebuking a, a demon, but why rebuke his disciples? Can I suggest that he rebuked his disciples from confessing who he was because it's not just a matter of telling people who Jesus is. It's a matter of showing people who Jesus is. Verse 22 goes on. 
He rebuked them, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And you know, by the end of this chapter, verse 51, we read of Jesus that at that point he set his face to go to Jerusalem. From that point on, if you were following Jesus, it meant you were following him to the cross. His life and our lives are marked by denying ourselves, by taking up our crosses and following Jesus. It's not about what people hear us saying. It's about what they see us doing, where they see us going. Do they see our commitment being lived out? That's why Peter is rebuked here. Don't tell people who I am until you're able to show them, until you're able to live it out. If your commitment doesn't match your confession, then, then don't make the confession. If you're not carrying your cross, if you're not denying yourself, if you're not putting others first, then your words are going to mean nothing. If we're not motivated by loving God and, and loving our neighbor, if we're not seeking Christ's compassion as our own, then it's best we not say anything about Jesus. The people won't hear our confession if they can't see our commitment. You know, for the last three months, we've had the world listening to us in a very unique way. Did you know that more people attended Easter this year uh, than any other Easter? Um, granted, they attended it online, just not in person. And we've been able to step out of our little community here and reach people around the world. They saw us, and they've heard us, they've, they've seen us greeting one another, they, they've heard us proclaiming our faith. People around the world have sang with us, they've prayed with us. But we need to be aware of what they hear from our actions. They need, we need to be aware of what they hear from the way we carry our crosses, the way we mourn, with those who mourn, the way we seek the peace of Christ above ourselves, the way we live out our commitment and not just declare our confession. Over the past three months, there have been a lot of different crowds. There have been a lot of different opinions. There have been a lot of division. And I have read and I have heard some very heated debates, even among Christians. But I hope we all remember that by Sunday, we come together to, to one meal. We come together and share from the cup, from the loaf. And we have one person who we declare as our king. 
And whatever it is that might divide us, whatever else divides us, when we come to Him, all of that needs to be laid aside. And I pray that we've conducted ourselves in such a way that our world knows our confession and our world sees our commitment. <laughs> I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? I, I love that we can declare that together. But our world needs to see it. Our world needs to see it in our love for each other, in our love for them, in the way we reach out to those who are hurting, no matter who they may be, no matter what they may look like, where they may be from, in the way we lay aside our own needs, take up our cross, and make sure that others are fed, make sure that others are clothed, make sure that others are cared for. In the way, it's not just our mouths, but our lives that declare Jesus is King. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for your amazing love. Lord, in, in a world that is so divisive, in a world where we will divide over so many different things, I pray today that the love that we have known from Christ unites us. I pray especially for us as, as members of the body of Christ that whatever it is in us and of us that causes division between us, Lord, let us lay that aside, especially now as we come to the table, as we come to take the bread, as we come to drink the cup, and as we come to share what it means for us to be one, for us to be the body of Christ. Lord, it's not just about the bread. It's not just about the, the juice. It's about the, the blood that binds us together. And it's about the new life in us that, that declares who Jesus is and that shows him to our neighbors, shows him to our friends, shows him to the crowds around us. I pray, Lord, that what they see in us, what they hear from us, the way that we reach out, the way that we love, I pray that it all declares Christ's glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.